Tonight, as we move into our study of knowing God, we are looking tonight at chapter 2 of the book. Chapter 2 is the people who know their God. And the focus of this chapter is on the effects that, that knowing God has on our lives. And he begins by talking about what it's like to know God. And again, in the introduction and spend a little bit more time on it tonight, he's making a distinction between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing God truly and having a relationship with him and, and experiencing God in that relationship with him has an impact on our lives. And that has an effect that is visible, that's noticeable. And so he opens with a story of someone who was rejected for a particular position and he said, it doesn't matter because I've known God. That outlook of, it doesn't matter what happens in this world. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I can weather those because I know God. That is, that is the kind of knowing God that he's wanting us to experience. And so he asks us to ask that question of ourselves. Can we without hesitation say that we know God? Not just facts about God, not just theological truths, not just quoting Bible verses, but do we know God? And does that knowledge of God uh, display itself in our lives such that we can have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory? Can we have this sure confidence that we can encounter whatever comes to us in life, life's disappointments, and we can see them through the, the lens of that relationship with God and know that he's doing something good in our lives. And we can see them not as losses, but as gains and not be disappointed by what could have been, but seeing that whatever happens is supposed to happen because it's under the hand of a loving and watchful God. So do we really know God? And he draws in Paul's account in Philippians 3 to kind of guess to think along those lines. In Philippians 3, just to, to kind of help us think about the context, Paul, at the beginning of this chapter, talks about all the things that he had accomplished in his life. He lists off all of his, basically his resume, and says, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. Touching the law, I was blameless. And he lists all of these accomplishments. But then he says, they're nothing. They're nothing. All of that is nothing. I would rather trade all of that so that I might know Christ. And so he says in Philippians 3, 7, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And now think about the things that he's saying now are just refuse. Being known as one of the greatest teachers in all of Israel. A, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And he's saying, none of that means anything. It's just garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. And to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. This is the kind of knowledge he's talking about in this book. Not to know about Christ. I want to know Christ. 
And I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What Paul is saying in this passage is, I can't really know Christ without the suffering. In order to to know Christ, I have to experience some of the suffering that he said would come to his followers in this world. Becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So it's this orientation of whatever is in this world pales in comparison to who God is, who Christ is, and knowing God in Christ. And then he, he moves into then the distinction between knowing versus knowing about. Knowing versus knowing about. And he says, one can know a great deal about God without much knowledge of him. And this is evident in a lot of uh, university classrooms, liberal seminary classrooms. You can have, you can sit in a classroom and listen to a PhD who has a doctorate in theology, but doesn't really know God. And, and has all of these ideas and all of these different philosophies and all of these uh, isms in his mind. And he studied the Bible his whole life, but yet doesn't really know God. You can have a lot of facts, a lot of knowledge about God without really knowing him. And that's the distinction that he's wanting us to think about. So just knowing facts about God is not the same as knowing God. So if we finish this study of knowing God and we can pass a test at the end, but we're not any closer in our relationship with God and we don't, we don't have a more vibrant prayer life, a more vibrant worship life, devotional life, then from his perspective, I think he would say, I've failed in my purpose. It's not just about knowing facts and being able to, to spout off theology, but to know God. And then he also says, one can know a great deal about godliness without much knowledge of God. Meaning that in the first point, he's talking about knowledge of facts, of theological truths. In the second one, he's more focusing on the practical outworking of, of our Christian life. And he lists off all kinds of things, like um, he says, uh, there's no shortage of books on the church book tables or sermons from the pulpits on how to pray, how to witness, how to read our Bibles, how to tithe our money, how to be a young Christian, how to be an old Christian, how to, get, how to be a happy Christian, how to get consecrated, how to lead people to Christ, and generally know uh, how to go through all the various motions which the teachers in question associate with being a Christian believer. He says, whatever else may be said about this state of affairs, it certainly makes it possible to learn a great deal secondhand about the practice of Christianity, yet one can have all this and hardly know God at all. So it's not about facts about God, neither is it about just going through the motions and doing all the activities. And a proof of that from the scriptures is in Matthew 7. When Jesus says there are going to be people at the last day who are going to be able to list off all kinds of religious activities that they've done for Christ. Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do miracles? Did we not do these things? And Jesus will say, I never, what, knew you to really know them in a saving way. 
And so the question is not whether we are good at theology or that we have a, a, a box cutter or a cookie cutter approach to Christian living. The question is, can we honestly say that we know God? And that because we have known God, the unpleasantness that we have had or the pleasantness that we have not had, though being Christians, does not matter to us. Can we have that outlook of, doesn't matter what happens in this world because I know God. And then he goes on, and, and the, the, the heart of the chapter are four effects that really knowing God has on believers' lives. And those four effects are these. The first one is those who know God have great energy for God, meaning action. That the more that someone knows God and truly knows who he is and has spent time with the Almighty, that translates into an energy and a zeal for God. And he uses throughout this whole chapter the example of Daniel and his friends, who, when, when put to the test, and the unbelieving rulers of Babylon were saying all kinds of blasphemous things about God, that Daniel and his friends would stand up and say, that's wrong. And they would act. They would display action for God. And he quotes from Daniel 11.32 in the chapter, which is in the context of adversity. Daniel 11 is in the midst of a prophecy about uh, enemies of the people of God and how they will oppose the people of God. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. So in other words, even in the face of adversity, God's people will not be silent, but will do what is right. And will have this zeal, have this energy for God. And he says, in a couple of ways, this is how we can display our energy for God. One is in standing for God against the world. In standing for God against the world. He says, those who know their God are sensitive to situations in which God's truth and honor are being directly jeopardized. And rather than let the matter go by default, will force the issue on men's attention and seek thereby to compel a change of heart about it, even at personal risk. In other words, he's not saying that we need to stir up trouble in relationship to the world. But there are times when seeking to live in the wisdom of God and being able, as Jesus said, to be uh, as innocent as doves, but wise as serpents, there are times when we have to say, I have to take a stand against the world. And I cannot go silently on and allow the world to run over me, run over my testimony for Christ, to run over the name of Christ. I have to stand up and say something. Even if that means, like Daniel and his friends, if we die, we die. So it came to a head for Daniel's three friends, didn't it? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they were put to the test. Bow down before this statue, before this idol that I've made, 
or I'm going to throw you into the burning, fiery furnace. And they said, we can't bow. Our God is stronger than you. Our God is mightier than you, and he can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. That's the kind of standing up and taking action that he's talking about. When, when the world and its opposition to God puts it in such a way that we have, we, there's no other way except for us to boldly and confidently stand and say, I'm with God, not with you, not with the world. And so this is one way that we can show our energy for God. And this, can, this kind of taking a stand for God in opposition to the world can only come from someone who has been in communion with God. That's his point. You have to know God in order to be able to be at this point where you can take this stand against the world. The other way that our energy for God can be displayed is in effectual fervent prayer. He says the invariable fruit of true knowledge of God is energy to pray for God's cause. Energy indeed, which can only find an outlet and a relief of inner tension when channeled into such prayer. And the more knowledge, the more energy. The more that we know God, the more that we want to pray. The more that we know him, the more that we want to pray with zeal and with repetition, coming back often before the throne of God effectual, fervent prayer. But he says, if, however, there is in us little energy for such prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. So kind of a litmus test of where we are in our knowledge of God. Now, again, not knowledge of facts about God. In our knowledge of God is how is our prayer life? Do we pray often and do we pray with zeal and energy to approach God's throne? But this is one of the evidences of knowing God, energy for God. The second one that he talks about in the chapter is those who know God have great thoughts of God. Those who know God have great thoughts of God. Now, this is, there are go, there's going to be theological truth a part of this. But those theological truths about God are a means to causing us to worship him and to think great thoughts about him. So it's not that I can reproduce on, on a paper, you know, the points of what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God. And, I, and I've got those memorized. I've got those down. But that that knowledge of the sovereignty of God and the greatness of God leads me to meditate about him in wonder and to think great thoughts about God. And he just mentions in the book of Daniel just several places where God is magnified and, and things are said about the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of God over his world, more than perhaps in any other book of the Bible. Great thoughts of God. And so in Daniel 2.20, this is just an example of these lofty thoughts of God. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. And this isn't a prayer. This isn't a prayer of Daniel to the Lord when confronted with the challenge of having to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So here's him praying to the Lord. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. 
Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. Now, those are great theological truths, isn't it? Those are, God is all-knowing. God is sovereign over all the affairs of men. He deposes kings. He, he causes kings to rise. All of these great theological truths. But for Daniel, they were real because it was in the situation in which his life literally depended on whether or not he was going to be able to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So for him, these truths are not dry theology. For him, his life hung in the balance on this God that he is praying to. And that he is this God who knows deep and hidden things and can reveal them to me so that I can tell them to Nebuchadnezzar and my life and the life of my friends can be spared. Great thoughts of God. And he just asked the question after he goes through Daniel chapter 2 in these verses, he, he asked the question, is this how we think of God? Is this the view of God which our own praying expresses? Does this tremendous sense of his holy majesty, his moral perfection, and his gracious faithfulness keep us humble and dependent, awed and obedient, as it did Daniel? By this test, too, we may measure how much or how little we know God. By this measure of having great thoughts of God, there's a lot of the evangelical church that doesn't really know God. Because they're not having big thoughts about God. So one of the effects of knowing God is we have big thoughts, great thoughts of God. Another one is those who know God show great boldness for God. Those who know God show great boldness for God. He says Daniel and his friends were men who stuck their necks out. They put their lives on the line. They knew what they were doing. They counted the cost. They had measured the risk. And they were well aware that the outcome of their actions would be unless God miraculously intervened. They knew. And they took boldness, bold action for God. He says, it is the spirit of all who know God. They may find the determination of the right course to take agonizingly difficult, but once they are clear on it, they embrace it boldly and without hesitation. It does not worry them that others of God's people see the matter differently and do not stand with them. So they're bold. They know which way they ought to go. They know what God's word says, and they boldly walk down that path, even if others do not go with them. That kind of boldness can only come from knowing God. And one of the verses that I thought of, I don't, I don't believe he quoted this in the chapter but I thought of this verse in this context. is Acts 4.13. This is when Peter and John were arrested and they were brought before the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John had such a boldness for Christ that they knew that these men had been disciples of Jesus. They knew that they had been with Jesus. It says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is where it says in Acts 4, we, we've got to obey God rather than men. 
Because they told them, we're going to let you go, but do not speak any more about this name of Jesus. And they said, we've got to obey God rather than men. And they left knowing that they were going to go out and the first person they came across were going to tell them about Jesus. And that kind of boldness can only come from having been with Jesus, from knowing God. So those who know God show great boldness for God. And the last effect that he talks about in the chapter is those who know God have great contentment in God. The more that we know God and the more that we know of him and, and of his promises, the more that we're able to see all of life through an eternal perspective. And that all the disappointments and the hardships and the difficult things that enter into our lives, they do not shake us. That doesn't mean they're not hard. It doesn't mean that they're not painful. It doesn't mean that they, they don't bring tears or pain, but those who know God are able to weather those things with a peace, with a calmness, with a sure foundation that others do not have because they do not know God. And he gives some, uh, here's a quote in the chapter, and then he gives some verses to remind us of this relationship of peace and contentment that we have with God. He says, there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them and that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life through death and on forever. And then he just reminds us of some of the promises in scripture that come to us because we know God. And this, this kind of knowledge of God that can give us peace in the midst of difficulty. He says from Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're now in a relationship of harmony and unity with God the Father because of Jesus Christ. And that relationship of har harmony and unity brings an assurance and a calmness to our hearts. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no fear of death, no fear of condemnation, no fear of the judgment. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Knowing God means that we believe and trust him that all of these things that are happening are a part of his sovereign hand. And he's weaving them together. We believe when we know God, Romans 8.31. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If we know God, we know that he's for us. And we know that there's nothing in this world that can be against us. If we know God, then we're convinced, like Paul was convinced, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Knowing God brings that kind of a contentment, an assurance, a peace in which we can encounter the world. And along those lines, I thought of this testimony of Paul in Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul wrote those words, he was in jail. He was in prison. And you can tell from the way that he writes it in Philippians chapter 1 that he did not know exactly what was going to happen. 
with his life. He didn't know if he was going to be released to go on ministering for Christ or if he was going to die. But he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's, that's the example that he gave at the beginning of the chapter. It doesn't matter what these people say because I've known God. It doesn't matter if I'm in jail and be set free, or it doesn't matter if I'm in jail and then I face execution. It doesn't matter because I know God. And so if I go on living, then that means more ministry for you. And, and it's a blessing for you because I can come and I can minister to you. And so that's what he means by for me to live is Christ. For me to live, if I go on living, it means my life continues to be what it's been about for the past several years, and that is to go on proclaiming Christ, to live for him. But if I die, that's even better. Because then I'm not just proclaiming Christ, I'm with Christ. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's the kind of contentment that... J.I. Packer is talking about when he says that kind of contentment can only come from knowing God. That to face a diagnosis of cancer, it's serious. It's hard. I'm not saying that, it, that it's not going to rattle us a little bit. But that when we pray and when we read the scriptures and when we come to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can say along with Paul, even in the face of the diagnosis of cancer, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That's the kind of testimony that can come from someone who knows God. So, what are some of the things that we can do in our lives to help us move toward a deeper knowledge of God? One of them is just to recognize where we are now. Recognize where we stand. Do we, do we know God? Recognize and acknowledge how much we lack knowledge of God. And so just want, run through these four tests or these four effects that we talked about in the chapter. Do I have a lot of energy for God that manifests itself in the way that I interact with the world and the way that I pray? Do I have great thoughts of God and, and do I worship God and think of him when I'm not singing hymns in a church people? Do I often, does my mind often come back to God and great thoughts of him? Do I have a boldness to share the gospel to, regardless of, of who is helping me or who goes with me, do I have a boldness to proclaim the name of Christ in the face of a hostile world? Do I have uh, a contentment, a peace, in, in the face of all of life's circumstances that can only come from knowing God. To have a testimony like Paul, where at the end of Philippians, he says, I've learned in whatever state, whatever condition I'm in, there to be content. I've been rich, I've been poor, but in all of these things, in all these situations of life, I can do all of this because Christ strengthens me. That's the kind of contentment, the kind of peace that he's talking about from knowing God. So, Evaluate our knowledge of God, our personal relational knowledge of God, based on these four effects that it has in our lives. And then he says, he says, second, we must seek the Savior. Seek Christ. The beautiful thing about the scriptures is that it gives us the Lord Jesus Christ, who according to John 1.14 and 1.18, he is God 
dwelling among us in the flesh. And even though we can't see God, we can see the Savior. And the Savior has come to reveal, to declare who God is. And there is no greater picture in the world, in all of creation, of God than Jesus Christ. He is the exact representation of his being. He is the image of the invisible God. So that Jesus can say to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So how can we know God? We can know God by knowing Christ and draw closer to him. Now, obviously, Christ bodily, physically is not with us here like he was with his disciples. But we do have the Gospels. We have the New Testament writings. We have the scriptures that tell us a lot about who Jesus was and is, what he did, what he is doing now for us at the right hand of the Father, what he will do for us in the future. We know a lot about who Jesus was and is. And that can help us draw closer to God. So seek Christ. Seek the Savior. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ is now absent from us in body, but spiritually it makes no difference. He says, Still we may find and know God through seeking and finding Jesus' company. It is those who have sought the Lord Jesus till they have found him. For the promise is that when we seek him with all our hearts, we shall surely find him who can stand before the world to testify that they have known God. And so may that be said of us, that we know God. And the world can say, like they said of James and of Peter, or of John and of Peter, these people display evidence that they've been with Christ. They've been with the Savior. May that be said of us.